uh, Luke chapter 22. We're going to start reading from verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Uh, For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who could do this. And also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. He replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, 
But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciple said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Today we're going to begin um, a series where we look at the, the events of Easter weekend. Um, Easter itself in our calendar is not, that, uh, is not that far away. Here we're going to be looking at in the scriptures uh, what happened on the evening um, before uh, Jesus was killed. It, it centers around this, this meal that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, in the midst of that, that's obviously where we have um, our communion or um, the breaking of bread. That's where we get it from. Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, John Stott has written, it was by his death that he wished above all else uh, to be remembered. And as I've been preparing for this, I feel that God has, has been challenging me on remembering the Lord's death, and what it means to have a, a life that can truly be described to be uh, centered and focused on the cross. There's a whole lot about Jesus that he could have said, I specifically want you to remember this. But what he does is inaugurate a feast, inaugurate this, uh, this meal, by saying what I specifically want you to remember is my death. Now for... Um, for those of us who've been Christians for some time, um, maybe the, the spiritual adventure that we're on got started by realizing what was happening, what Jesus actually achieved at the cross. And it started kind of like Paul. We could describe maybe how something came away from our eyes. Suddenly we, we understood the cross. We understood what Jesus had done for us there. Um, and there, on from there, we're seeking to become more and more mature in our faith. And perhaps as we grow in maturity in our faith, we might get involved in more things. We might have um, uh, involvement in, in, in worship. We might have a particular desire to be involved in, in evangelism. We might uh, get involved in just wanting to make sure uh, pastorally people are cared for. We might have a, a, a certain areas of interest that, uh, that grab us. And when that's the case, and, and God willing that would be the case, that we're, we're growing in maturity, we never want to move on or leave behind the place where it all began. And that's here in the build-up to the cross, having a life that is focused on the cross. For, for new Christians, for people who maybe, you know, you've done an Alpha course recently, um, been saved a, a relatively short period of time, it can feel sometimes daunting. There's, there's so much to get hold of. There's so much I want to... To, to learn and grow in and understand and explore. There are other people and they seem to know so much and, and that can feel a bit threatening. Well, really, there's only one thing that we need to know and it's the cross of Christ. The cross affects everything in our lives. And so, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says there, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers... I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him 
crucified. That, that is the centre of Paul's life. That's the centre of everything that Paul was doing, his, his ministry, and therefore the message that he's wanting to share with that church. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about Jesus and the cross. Do this in remembrance of me. Another theologian um, has written this. The Spirit, that is the, the Spirit of God, does not take his pupils beyond the cross, but ever more deeply into it. As we grow in our Christian walk with God, as maybe we grow in new responsibilities in the life of a church, for example, we're never putting the cross to one side. Oh, that's, that's where it got started, but now I'm going to move on to these other different topics. No, it's, it's all to do with the cross. The Spirit does not take his pupils beyond the cross, but ever more deeply into it. Uh, so this morning, we're going to look at um, specifically what, what are we remembering? And to answer that question, really, we're going to look at this. How, how did Jesus understand his death? If we want to understand his death, we need to understand how Jesus understood his death. Why did Jesus think he had to die? Why did Jesus specifically want us uh, to remember his death? And then having done that, we're going to look at some specific responses uh, that we see in this passage uh, to Jesus and how they help us respond to Jesus. So how did Jesus understand his death? Why did Jesus think that he had to die? Firstly, Jesus understood that he had to die to fulfill God's will. So in verse 22, he begins there by uh, having kind of dropped this bombshell that one of them is going to betray him. He says, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. In other words, before time began, God had decreed that the Lord Jesus would come to the earth, he would live, um, and then he would ultimately, uh, he would suffer and die. That death was necessary in God's will. It was part of his plan. So Jesus knew that he was going to suffer. He knew that his appointed time was drawing close. He knew that his death was part of God's plan. And even over Judas' betrayal, the wicked schemes of people trying to kill him, uh, even the activity of Satan, who's described in this passage, Jesus knew that his heavenly Father was in charge and in control of everything as it unfolds. Which is remarkable, really, because as we read this passage, there's, the, there's mounting tension in what's taking place. We, we hear right at the beginning, uh, verse 1, on from there, that the, uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Up until this point, as Jesus has been conducting his ministry, Often it will be uh, Pharisees who, who come along and, and kind of throw in uh, a testing question. They want to catch Jesus off guard. They want to discredit his ministry. Um, they're coming with, with critical attitudes. Um, as, as Jesus and his disciples approach Jerusalem, it's almost like the baton gets passed from those Pharisees to the guys who are really powerful, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they are plotting to kill Jesus. The tension is mounting. Judas, when he's first introduced, way back, I think, somewhere in chapter 6, it says, Judas, who was to betray, or who was to become Jesus' betrayer. 
Um, right there, it's introduced. We don't really hear much more about it uh, from then onwards. But now we hear this, that Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the, one of the twelve. And, and Judas goes to uh, the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discuss with them how he might betray Jesus. The tension mounting all the time. The same tension was mounting, actually, uh, centuries before at the original Passover. And we know here that uh, the, the Passover feast was approaching uh, and was taking place the same weekend of these events that we've read about. The tension was mounting then as well. God's people, the Jews, uh, were enslaved in Egypt and God sent Moses and God also sent ten, ten plagues with which to... Um, persuade Pharaoh uh, to let them go, let my people go, uh, so they can come and worship me in the desert. And plague after plague after plague gets the same stubborn response from Pharaoh. No, I'm not. And then the tenth plague comes along, and this is the, te- this is the, um, the stakes have really upped all the way through. The tenth plague comes along, and it's this, the, the firstborn of every household in Egypt is going to die. And you could imagine there that the Jews are just thinking, well, how is this going to resolve? The, the tension is mounting. Uh, God has, has, has come, he's brought Moses. God is obviously at work and doing a great deal, but Pharaoh's stubborn refusal is just growing by the day. How is this going to resolve? And then back here in Luke 22, how is this going to resolve? There's, there's a plan to destroy Jesus. How is this going to fit in with God's plan to save? Remarkable then to see Jesus not panicked by this growing plot. Not panicked by knowing that he's going to be betrayed. But calm in control. And that applies for us today. That God's plans always unfold to a specific timetable. Even when events, globally or personally, uh, become increasingly dark, God is never taken by surprise or thwarted. And even the evil schemes of men wanting to betray and kill Jesus were still under God's sovereign control. There's no cause for Jesus to panic here. Nothing, even the activity of Satan, is outside of God's control. God is completely sovereign over all things. And we must never lose sight of that. Sometimes, um, maybe with kind of good intentions, um, Christians can seek to find comfort in in half-truths of, well, God is in control, but he's not quite in control of everything. You see, he can... He knows certain events as they pan out through history, but there are certain other events that he doesn't know. He's, he's just waiting to see what happens. There's absolutely no comfort in that, really. There's only comfort in knowing this, that God is completely sovereign over all things. And that's what Jesus knows here. That's what enables him to walk calmly through these events, knowing that he was going to be betrayed, but not being panicked Uh, to to rush to certain courses of action. No, things are going to unfold according to the plans of God, even though these plans are being made uh, for harm.
So, Jesus understood that his death fulfilled God's will. Actually, God wanted him to die. God willed this to be for good purposes. Jesus also knew that he was going to die in order to fulfill God's word. And so in verse 37, we read here, uh, it, it is written that he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Just to focus on one example of how Jesus' death fulfilled God's word is actually in this matter of the Passover itself. This particular celebration that the Jewish nation um, were remembering that weekend is mentioned quite a number of times. So, uh, verse 1, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread called the Passover was approaching. Verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. First. Eight, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Uh, verse 11, um, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. And then it reaches a crescendo as we get to verse 15, when Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This was not just a a coincidence. Oh, it just so happens that Jesus is going to die and go to the cross during the same weekend when the whole nation was gathering and preparing to celebrate the Passover. So what happened at the Passover? Way back in Exodus 12. Again, as as I mentioned earlier on, when... um, The Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, wondering how are we going to be delivered from Pharaoh? This and also God has just announced this plague on the firstborn. How how are we going to escape that? Is the firstborn in every household going to suffer the same fate, the same judgment of the people of Egypt? And then the Passover comes, and uh, we won't go into all the details in chapter 12, but you can see there what takes place in chapter 12, and what each Jewish household had to do was take a male lamb or goat, a year old, that was spotless and perfect. This was to be a lamb that wasn't just the the kind of the runt of the litter, a perfect lamb that was spotless, without any blemish, without any fault, without any defect, any problem. And that lamb was to be condemned to death, slaughtered, and not only so, but its blood was used. The blood of that lamb was taken and it was painted uh, to mark the door frames and the windows, the lintels of every Jewish household. And so that as the angel of death that God had sent to bring judgment passed by each household in the land of Egypt, that angel would see the blood of a lamb marked on the door frames and the doorposts of of, of a particular house and would know, therefore, to pass over and not bring judgment on that house. And so here, as we arrive at the Passover, being prepared, being celebrated, 
in chapter 22. And it's remarkable to consider that even the people who were plotting to kill Jesus at the same time are preparing to kill the lambs to commemorate the Passover. As this is being built up, Jesus knows that he is the Lamb of God who God has sent to take away the sins of the world. No longer just the, uh, an, an, an animal that's blood is used to, to paint on a physical house. Now Jesus is giving his life as a sacrifice so that his blood would be put on the door frames of our lives, of our hearts, so that God doesn't bring judgment over us, but brings wonderful grace, freedom, forgiveness for sins for eternity. Now, for the Jewish people, they were delivered, they were rescued, they were redeemed from the land of Egypt, but it was just them. It was that particular group, it was that particular nation who were rescued. And actually, they were just rescued, in a sense, for a time. They, they escaped death in Egypt, but actually, down the line, a lot of them were still going to die. This rescue that Jesus was doing for us wasn't just bringing a temporary rescue for a certain few people for a certain period of time. This was the Lamb of God, sacrificed for us, to bring a rescue for all people everywhere, not just for a limited period of time, but for eternity. So Jesus knows, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Yes, he knows that he's about to suffer. But in the word, he sees why he's going to suffer. He's going to suffer to rescue. He's going to suffer in order to save and to save us. That's why Jesus wants to be remembered, particularly by his death. That's why his death on the cross really is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. That really is why the cross is to be the center of our lives. That everything in our lives flows one way or another from this amazing redemption, this amazing rescue, which is Jesus dying for us on the cross. Him then wanting in us a life that is centered in the cross. Not, oh, that's, that's when I, I first met God at the cross. Since then I've grown in maturity and I've kind of left it behind. No, as we grow in our walk with God, we're always growing in this amazing redemption. Not, not a half measure of oh, just a little bit of blessing to get you going in your spiritual walk. No, this is everything. This is massive. And so as Jesus takes the bread, they would think, oh, we're just having a Passover meal. This is what we've done for years and years and years. Jesus is saying, no, this isn't just uh, the bread of affliction. This isn't just any old bread. This, this is my body. And this bread is broken because my body is going to be broken for you. And this is, uh, this is the cup. This is the wine. And during a Passover meal, the Jew- Jewish people would have, have taken from four uh, communal cups of wine. And so Jesus takes a couple of them in this passage. But now he's not saying um, uh, this, this is kind of uh, the blood of a lamb. No, this is, this is my blood, and my blood is going to be poured out. Uh, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be broken, but it's for you, and this is to do you good. That's why 
Jesus died, and that is particularly what we are remembering. This passage also shows us uh, three responses to Jesus. Three different responses take place to Jesus in this passage. Maybe uh, we could look at more, but we're just going to look at uh, three. Um, And the first is how Judas responds. Judas, he is not a cross-centered kind of a guy. Um, He appears to be a follower of Jesus and part of the closest group of Jesus' disciples. But his, his focus is elsewhere, really. His focus is on his plans and his agenda rather than Jesus' plans, God's plans and God's agenda. Uh, verse 3, we get this kind of remarkable verse. Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot. I mean, what does that mean? Was he just suddenly taken over? Um, uh, Doctor Who seems to have kind of risen up again, uh, kind of BBC have given him a makeover or two. And in Doctor Who, you tend to get baddies that are kind of a bit robotic. And so there'll be a scene, perhaps, where they all, they're in the house or whatever, they they look out of the window, and then there's maybe one, maybe a few uh, typical Doctor Who baddies, and they're kind of just doing this. They'll probably be walking really, really slowly, um, giving plenty of time to escape, conveniently. Um, But they're kind of they're kind of robotic, and suddenly maybe a switch gets switched and they're just taken over. Um, was that the case for Judas? Was he kind of, kind of going along, fully a part of things, fully involved, and just suddenly Satan decides, well, I'm, uh, I'll use you. Yes, um, I'm going to enter into you. Oh, and Judas has got absolutely no kind of prior knowledge or warning of this, and suddenly he's taken over um, for Satan's purposes. Well... I don't think that is quite the case. I think for Judas, there had been issues for some time that Satan was able then to exploit in order to bring about Jesus' betrayal. For example, one of those issues uh, would be highlighted in John 12. Um, This is just after Jesus has um, been anointed with a very expensive perfume. And it says in, in John 12 and verse 4, says there, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And John adds, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Ah, there's part of Judas' agenda. He wants to make money. That desire to make money then leads him to uh, to theft, to to steal um, money that was in the kind of communal pot. In other words, for some time, he's just been nurturing sin. He's been nurturing a bad attitude, particularly in respect of of money. And so when opportunities for making money, as he sees it, get curtailed, he thinks, well, um, I'll find another way to achieve what I want. Um, There's an opportunity here to betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, bingo. That's one issue that remains outstanding. He just doesn't deal with, develops. Satan exploits it. Uh, Pennies might start to drop in another way. There's another issue here as well. Jesus, before the passage that we've just read, um, shares a number of things that perhaps could sound a little bit distressing. So Luke in chapter 21, 
verse 12, um, Jesus says this, but before all this, they will lay, lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. Well, that doesn't sound so much like good news, does it? To be betrayed, to be um, uh, persecuted rather, we see in verse 16, Jesus says as well, he predicts this, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death. Oh, Jesus, this is not sounding so appealing, uh, perhaps. Um, Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, what? I thought Jesus was going to bring this amazing new kingdom and we're going to see our our Roman occupiers um, sort of sent packing and it was going to be some glorious heyday, but Jesus is saying, now Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies and you'll know that its desolation is near. That doesn't sound like good news. And so maybe for for Judas, there's, there's frustrated ambition. Maybe he thought, I'm going to join this group because uh, I'd like to be one of the leaders of this new revolution. Um, maybe that is, I could, I could really go somewhere. If I, if I kind of tuck in for a while behind Jesus, maybe that will open new doors of opportunity for me uh, to lead and to kind of progress and to become uh, kind of prominent and so on. So maybe all of those things are in his mind. And so Jesus starts laying this down, describing these things that are about to take place, and describing what's going to happen to himself. Well, he's just frustrated. This is not what he wanted. Now that can happen in the life of the church, where kind of frustrated ambition uh, comes in. We might have certain preferences or plans or way we, the ways we'd like to th- see things done and then just frustrated if things don't quite materialise in the way that we want. And for all of us, it's important to evaluate ourselves. Are there any desires, are there any issues that are causing me, as it were, to maybe lose sight of the cross, to maybe lose sight of Jesus and to kind of get preoccupied with my, my chosen side issue, my, my chosen kind of bugbear, or what I'd really like to see, uh, to see happen. Um, and Paul writes in Ephesians, and he says in, verse, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 27, um, or reading from verse 26, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down, while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That's what Judas had done. He'd given the enemy a foothold. Just, oh, the love of money. Frustrated ambition. And the enemy was able to exploit that. We want to ensure that that bitterness or anger is not getting a foothold in our lives. So that maybe, without realizing it unwittingly, uh, we be- we can become a mouthpiece for the enemy to use to, to bring the destruction that he has in mind. Uh, obviously, God doesn't, doesn't want that. Let's, let's be those who are evaluating ourselves and not allowing the enemy to get even what might just be a small uh, foothold because he can exploit that. It can grow. And, uh, and, and before we know it, um, uh, kind of people are being destroyed. 
Maybe what this also reflects is that it's possible um, in the life of a church to just enjoy being with a group of people that you like me- that we like mixing with, and uh, being in the presence of Jesus. Well, that's okay. Uh, even maybe serving Him in some capacity. Um, what this reveals to us is that even that doesn't necessarily mean that we know Him. And so the challenge goes out is, again, to anyone here, please, please don't be satisfied with being a part of the crowd, with being part of the social, the social scene of a church. Um, in a sense, no one really knew. As, it, as we see, no one really knows. Oh, I, I, I suspect that it's probably Judas who's, the, who's, who's not really in the crowd, as it were. Um, no, he, he, to all intents and purposes... He looked like all the other disciples. When Jesus uh, drops the bombshell, no one says, oh yeah, well you must be talking about Judas then. No, it's, it's not obvious. And in the life of the church, it won't necessarily be obvious. And so again, this opportunity comes today. Are you sure you're not just part of the crowd? Are you sure actually that you've, you've met the Lord Jesus in such a way that it's so changed your life? You know, there's no going back. The cross of Christ thoroughly defines who we are, defines our future and all um, that we're about. We see Jesus' reaction to Judas. And uh, in the words here in verse 22, it says, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Woe to that man can sound, you know, we could almost read into that that Jesus had quite an angry uh, tone of voice. Uh, Maybe he said this with some kind of vindictive desire for, for vengeance. It's been pointed out that perhaps uh, a helpful translation for us to bear in mind is this. It's like Jesus saying, alas, alas for that man. It's an expression of sadness and grief, not of anger or vengeance. It's like this man is missing out big time. He thinks that by staying part of Jesus' group, he'll miss out. But actually... He's missing out horrendously by choosing to leave and choosing to, to betray. It shows us this, that God's plans are what's best for our lives. And so let's trust God. Let's trust him in his plans for us. Let's trust God that the timing and purpose of his plans are perfect. So we see Judas. We also see the, the disciples. Judas was focused on his plans and his preferences and his agenda. The disciples are kind of focused on their position. This amazing kind of interaction. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Somehow that leads them to discuss who's the greatest among them. Uh, and I kind of wonder if it goes something like this. Well, it can't be me who's going to betray Jesus because clearly I'm head and shoulders above all you lot. Uh, I think I'm probably, uh, probably the greatest. It, it seems a, a bit bizarre. It could be like a bit of a panic reaction. Um, we see it's in verse 24, we see this dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And um, it's obviously a ridiculous uh, discussion. I kind of hope we grasp that. Um, but it could be like a kind of a panicked reaction. Imagine the feeling if um, you know, your, your, your favorite band or your favorite comedian or your favorite performer, one way or another, is coming to Sheffield Arena. There's a very limited number of tickets. Everyone in the universe wants to go. And so there's like this panic to rush to go and get your ticket. And it's almost like the disciples rushing, uh, panic-stricken, 
to kind of, uh, kind of get some place of significance in God's kingdom. Uh, they don't really want to miss out, perhaps. It reflects a desire for prominence. They want to, they want to be known. They want to be known maybe for the good that they've done. Um, Jesus says, well, there's, there's the kings of the Gentiles. They lord it over them. And those who exercise authority um, over them call themselves benefactors. To call yourself a benefactor is to say, Come on, look at the good that I've done. Look at what I've achieved and how it's benefited other people. Marvel in my greatness, won't you please? Um, it gets a bit carried away. We can all think, perhaps, that we're doing fine on that front until, perhaps, someone is kind of promoted ahead of us. We think, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not seeking greatness. I'm not seeking prominence. But then if someone else seems to get prominence, I think, oh, does that mean that I've suddenly been overlooked? Oh, I'll have to kind of panic-stricken fight my way, perhaps, to, to kind of get noticed and to get recognized. What's wonderful about Jesus is that, that being the case, he doesn't lose patience with his disciples at this point. He simply takes the opportunity to teach them. He's committed to seeing his disciples come through. Uh, one scholar has said this, Jesus is not saying that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove themselves in a lowly place. He is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. In other words, I'm not, maybe if I serve in this capacity, or it's not much, but if I do that, then maybe I'll get noticed, and then over here, I'll be able to do that. Uh, when everyone is aware of kind of what I've achieved for Jesus. Um, Jesus is saying, no, actually, true greatness is back over here. True greatness is serving God how, with opportunities that God brings um, to bring kind of glory to him. Jesus is able to teach from his own personal example. He says in verse 27, I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus doesn't kind of say, no, don't, don't desire to be great or don't, don't desire to, to lead. That desire in itself is not a bad thing. But all leadership should be the same shape as the cross. Greatness is found in demonstrating what Jesus demonstrated there. Serving other people rather than serving ourselves. So the disciples... Massively focused, perhaps, at this point in time, on, on their position. Well, let's get focused on Jesus and his position and what he's done. And it brings great satisfaction to think, God, how great is the love of God that even I should be a child of God. Even I should be brought into a position where I've received one blessing after another. So we looked at Judas, we looked at the disciples. Lastly, we're going to look at Peter. Judas was focused on his plans and his preferences. The disciples were focused on, on their position. Peter was focused on his performance or on his abilities. And so Jesus predicts that um, Simon's faith is going to be severely tested. He replies in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And in a similar passage in Matthew 26, verse 33 there, um, 
Peter is quoted as saying, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. He's full of, of kind of bravado. He, he's got the right intentions and he's kind of confident in his ability uh, to stand um, in a great, to stand by Jesus in this hour of testing. But in fact, all the disciples were about to fail Jesus. They were all about to desert him in his darkest hour. In some senses, Peter just happens to have the loudest mouth. Um, and again, what we see marvelously about Jesus' response to his disciples is this. Jesus actually knows what's going to happen. And Jesus paves the way for Peter's restoration even before Peter has denied him three times. The only person who comes out of this weekend well, in a sense, in terms of being impressive in their reputation, is Jesus. Everyone else, one way or another, stuffs it up. Peter stuffs it up. But Jesus prepares the way for him to be restored. So Jesus is not surprised when we stuff up and he restores us from failure in the same way that Peter was, uh, was restored. Peter was maybe focused in on his ability to perform. Now, I can do this. I've got what it takes. I've got all the right intentions. Well, Jesus knows that he doesn't have the ability to follow through on his intentions. And sometimes that can be the case for us. We want to do certain things for God. Uh, we imagine that maybe we'll be able to do this, that, or the other. But sometimes we just encounter our own weaknesses, our own, our own failures, our own inabilities uh, to follow through, our intentions. Well, this reveals to us, again, Jesus' wonderful grace. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, God's plans for our lives aren't thwarted the moment we slip up in some way. Which is the same, in some respects, for what was happening at that original Passover. All the Jewish people gathering into those houses, painting the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and on the windows so the angel of death would pass over. And as long as you were inside that house and that blood was on the door frames and on the doorposts, you were fine. You were saved. You were spared from God's judgment. But Moses himself was a murderer. So Moses, presumably, is in one of those houses. The blood is painted on the door frame. The angel of death passed over. He's saved. If he looked back over to his performance in life, it wasn't always kind of glowing A stars all the way. But actually, all that matters, all that matters is Jesus' performance. All that matters is what he has done. All that matters is his blood. Uh, in the book God's Stories, Andrew Wilson has written this, our rescue from the slavery of sin is not based on our performance, but on his sacrifice. We see that through faith in his blood, rather than th- through our efforts, we are not destroyed. We see that when the Father looks at our lives, he justifies us on the basis of Jesus' obedience, Jesus' law-keeping, and his zeal for God, not on ours. 
the only factor, the only factor that he takes into consideration is whether or not we have cried out for the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus to save us. Let's get preoccupied again. And I know for many of us, all of us maybe, we we are and we know the, the wonder of what Jesus has achieved for us on the cross. But let's allow ourselves at every given opportunity, here, core groups, personally, socially, everywhere, to get preoccupied on Jesus and Jesus' performance, what Jesus has achieved for us, on Jesus' position and the position that he brings us into, and Jesus' plans for our lives, uh, that we can perfectly trust, we can perfectly trust him in every respect. We see here um, in Luke chapter 22, a situation where the tension is mounting, darkness is developing, it's evening, night is coming, when Jesus says, yeah, the hour of darkness is here. Sometimes darkness can just seem to, to encroach and we can be aware of, of things that are going on in life that just raise a puzzle and are mysterious. Let's not throw away our confidence in God and our ability to trust him because he is in control of all things and that in all things we're trusting in his blood that has brought us into a wonderful relationship. Whatever, whatever stage we are at in our Christian walk, this is what God wants us to take, go even more deeply into appreciating. Uh, let's pray.